Hello and welcome to People and Profit. I'm Charles Pellegrin, coming up in this week's show. We'll start in Qatar, where we'll ask what the economic impact of hosting the FIFA World Cup could be. Can this be a transformative event for the gas-dependent country, or will it be a financial hole worth an estimated $200 billion? Our guest, Alexis Antoniadis, will join us from Doha in this show. And then we'll head to Australia, where we'll meet the mothers struggling to return to the labor market because of exorbitant childcare costs, a barrier that has exacerbated the country's skills shortage. And we'll finish in China. In a struggling economy, young fashionistas are learning to tighten their Gucci belts by buying their luxury goods secondhand. Let's begin by talking about one of the biggest sporting events on earth, the FIFA World Cup. Every four years, the tournament brings together the best national football teams from around the world. And this year, it's taking place in the small Gulf state of Qatar, an unusual choice that has raised eyebrows. The circumstances around the country's bid to host the event are clouded in suspicion of undue influence and bribery. The estimated $200 billion spent to build the necessary infrastructure has been criticized as economically and environmentally unsustainable, and the international attention it garnered has shed light on the country's poor human rights record, whether it's the plight of migrant workers or of the LGBT plus community. With that in mind, is it still worth hosting such an event for Qatar? Well, to help us with this question and many others, let's speak with Alexis Antoniadis. He's an associate professor and director of international economics at Georgetown University. And he's joining us live from Doha. Thank you so much for uh, being with us on People and Profit, Professor. Uh, you've made the argument that this uh, World Cup has succeeded in one thing, and that's getting the Qatar brand out there for the world to see. Uh, the case in point here is that your calculation of the number of mentions of Qatar on Twitter before and after uh, they got the bid. And your argument is to say that this is a crucial element in Qatar's economic development beyond its oil and gas industry. Can you tell us more about this? Indeed. Thanks. So um, winning the rights to host the World Cup on December 2nd, 2010, literally put Qatar on the map. If you were to look at monthly mentions of Qatar on Twitter the weeks and months before, you would get a few hundred per month, best case. But what happened right after? Everybody was tweeting about Qatar. Maybe in the beginning they were asking, is there such a country? Where is this country? Should Qatar win the rights? But the result was that the mentions of Qatar on Twitter Increased, increased a lot in the periods after and kept rising. So you went from a horizontal line to an upward sloping line. So it did put Qatar on the map. Now, the second part to your comment is, a, is an important one. Why do we need to put Qatar on the map? Well, Qatar as a brand is very important. If you want to attract businesses, if you need to attract tourism, if you want to attract FBI, FDI, people need to know the country and to know good things about this country. So it did bring some scrutiny, which is fair, but it also brought knowledge about the country. You, you talked about the, the scrutiny here. So what about uh, negative po uh, publicity? Uh, can't this be actually uh, detrimental uh, to future foreign investment, for instance? Or is it just a, a, care, a, a case of, uh, I don't care what you say about me, just make sure you spell my name correctly? No, that's definitely not the case. When you bid to host the rights for a mega event, you know that you will face scrutiny. 
And if you don't want to face a scrutiny, you don't bid for it. If you don't want to make changes, you don't bid for it. What the Qataris have done, they knew that uh, by bidding for the World Cup, they could offer an amazing event, but at the same time, it would help them expedite those reforms and work with their partners. And we have seen that in, you know, in the much criticized uh, labor markets in the country, all the reforms that took place. We are we're mentioning here, for example, the, the kefala system, which uh, which was a way that um, tied together employers uh, or migrant workers in Qatar with their employers and, and made them entirely dependent on their employers for uh, for for their movements. And uh, officially, this uh, this system, this kefala system, has been uh, revoked. Uh, there are issues with implementation here, um, but. Uh, in your argument, in your vision here, what is the future uh, of uh, the migrant community and these migrant workers within Qatar? Can we see them uh, further integrated within society, within getting even full-fledged citizenship? As you rightly pointed out, the kafala system was abolished a few years back. Qataris have been very open and transparent about the changes they are making and the fact that, of course, there can be even more changes. And that's why they have invited the ILO you know, to, to be in the country. So uh, integration also means that the, the laborers can be part of the economy, right? So it's economic access and giving them more opportunities. So I think as Qatar is growing and diversifying, the migrant population and the laborers will interact more uh, with society, with markets, with the economy. And how do we ensure that the scrutiny that uh, that the World Cup has brought continues beyond uh, the end of the tournament uh, to continue into these reforms that you say Qatar wants? At the end of the day, what they want to do is, is promote the Middle East, promote Qatar, attract businesses to come. And if you don't maintain those policies, if you don't enforce them, if you don't continue to, to improve and reform labor markets, uh, companies will think twice. So you will not capitalize on the hundreds of billions you have spent. So I don't see them going back in those policies. And uh, parallel to the uh, World Cup bid, Qatar developed its own sports uh, industry. For instance, with its uh, BN Sports TV network that's now available around the world, or with uh, a QSI, the group that owns uh, the Paris Saint-Germain Football Club here in, in Paris. Uh, would you consider that to be part of this uh, diversification effort uh, for the economy of the country? And, and, and is, there, is that a sustainable industry uh, going forward? Yes, I think it's it's one of the chains, but it's not diversification. It's not just going into sports, but naturally because there's just so much interest in sports, uh, there's much so much attention around uh, sport events, and then there is so much spending and infrastructure on on sports and mega events. One of the areas that Qatar will be pursuing is hosting such events, but also investing in sports. And you brought the example of PSG. But it's just one of the different areas for diversification. Professor Alexis Santaniades, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us on France 24 and People in Profit. As a reminder, you are an associate professor and director of international economics at Georgetown University in Doha. Thank you very much. Well, the soaring cost of childcare in Australia is a massive roadblock for many women wanting to return to the workforce. That's according to the country's education minister. Amid a widespread skills shortage, the federal government hopes plans for childcare reform will encourage mothers to go back to work sooner. Our Sydney correspondents Rochelle Harrison-Pless and Gregory Pless have this report. 
It's tea time for Helen and her youngest daughter, Olivia. While the Sydney mother's eldest is in daycare, she says to send both children, she'd have to fork out €40,000 a year. Hefty fees that have risen by 41% over the past eight years. It stunts my career growth, absolutely. Um, and I know many other mothers are in the same situation. One third of Australian mothers in a couple with a child under the age of five don't work. That figure rises to more than half for single mothers. The cost of childcare often disincentivising new parents from re-entering the workforce. The federal government is hoping to change that, recently proposing reforms that would benefit 96% of Australian households, increasing subsidies for any families earning less than €340,000 a year. Online investment platform Stake is one company facilitating returning to the office, offering employees childcare reimbursements of around €11,000 over two years, plus up to 16 weeks paid parental leave on top of existing government entitlements. There's a lot of people who are very talented, very skilled, but who stay at home because they can't afford to go back to work because childcare is so expensive. So making sure that we can alleviate a little bit of that burden was really essential. Siobhan will be among the first to benefit. Her baby is due in February. I can make the decision when I feel physically and mentally well to come back, like the finance doesn't come into it. Papa. Helen says providing that choice will lead to a more balanced workplace. Papa. There's no negative aspect about women returning to work. It is really an investment into, into ourselves now and, and into the future. Canberra claims the reforms will boost the economy, making 37,000 full-time skilled workers available to Australian businesses. And whether it's a penchant for Hermes bags or Rolex watches, Chinese customers have long preferred to buy designer garments and accessories new rather than pre-owned. But the pandemic and the country's economic slowdown has prompted a change in attitudes. Young people in particular are no longer avoiding secondhand luxury and the sector is taking off. Emerald Maxwell has this report. China's coronavirus-driven slowdown has had many tightening their belts. But that doesn't mean everyone's given up their taste for luxury, even if they're looking for it in different places. As someone who is a corporate slave, I will definitely be downgrading my consumption this year. But I still like what I like, and I can't control the desire to buy it. This customer has swapped the glitzy boutiques of the likes of Louis Vuitton and Gucci for the second-hand designer goods marketplace, which started as an online platform in 2016, but is now operating offline stores too. The company's founder says that as well as a jump in interest from buyers, he's also seen a surge in sellers, up 40% so far this year. Because the economy has slowed down, people think, why not sell some of my luxury goods sitting idle at home? Luxury goods with international companies from the real real to vestiaire collective, the luxury resale industry is booming in markets like Japan, the United States and Europe, particularly among millennials and Gen Z. But it's been slower to take off in China's $74 billion luxury goods sector, where customers have historically shown a preference for newness. The high-end market in China is still expected to grow, 
um, whether that's resale or new luxury. I'd just say that maybe the middle class, younger generations are perhaps not buying new luxury as much um, in this moment of, you know, being more measured about their pockets. Late last year, consultancy iResearch tipped China's pre-owned luxury market to grow from $8 billion in 2020 to $30 billion in 2025. Well, that's all for this week's show. For more of our content, do visit our website, france24.com. And you can also enjoy our show in podcast form just by searching for People in Profit on the platform of your choice. In the meantime, thanks for watching and do stay tuned.